This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. A few years ago, my family and I were camping up at a high elevation lake called Lake Turquoise. It's just outside of a city called Leadville here in Colorado. In the middle of the night, we heard what sounded like large animals running through the campsite. So I grabbed my flashlight and went outside, but they were not animals. They were people. And what we watched for maybe a quarter of an hour is that people would come running out of the darkness with a headlamp and then would disappear again into the darkness. And this happened with dozens and dozens, maybe a hundred people at most. They were running a race. It's a famous race called the Leadville 100. It's a 100-mile foot race with 15,000 feet of vertical change. It's an incredible race, and they have to run through the night. Now, imagine if you thought the Leadville 100 was actually a sprint, a 100-yard dash, and you signed yourself up for it. Well, with the expectations in mind, I'd have to say you would not run very well and certainly not finish. You see, when we come to our Christian faith, one of the challenges, I think, for some believers is that we don't have the right expectations in our mind. We think that the Christian race is a joyride, a jungle cruise, a jaunt around the track, when in fact the scriptures tell us that it's an endurance race. It's something that takes enduring perseverance to run well and finish This is the description that we get in the text today in our study through the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 picks up from where we left off in chapter 11 last week with the word, therefore. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That the Christian journey here is described as a race that is set before us. And this word, therefore, is to hearken back what was just said. And remember from last week, Pastor John did a great job looking at the hall of faith. These wonderful examples of men and women who have run before us, who have run their race. And we are surrounded by them like a cloud of witnesses. Now, some would give the imagination that there's like a stadium filled with these saints that are looking at us each day, cheering us on. You can do it. Come on. That's probably not what the author has in mind. With the idea of therefore, since we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, they're a cloud of witnesses, a testimony to us, an example to us of how we are to have endurance and run as they ran their own race. Now, just jumping back here, we see that these are not necessarily heroic people all the time. They're rather ordinary. They have their own foibles and warts and mistakes. They don't run their race perfectly, just like us. But they have their race to run. They're not running a race in order to beat all the other believers. They're not running this race in order to separate themselves from the pack. They're running their race in pursuit of God. See, the destination, the goal is the same, no matter who's running it. 
But the race marked out for us can be very different. Let's poke back into chapter 11, pick it up in verse 34, where he talks about these different, these different triumphs and trials that the heroes of the faith were going through. We'll pick it up actually in verse 32. The author says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Like in their races against injustice, against death, against hardships, they triumphed. They even received some back to life in resurrection. These are what we would consider the peaks of the race. Incredible ways in which God displayed his power in their life. Now, if we were just to look back at those examples with our own race in mind, we would say, that's not realistic. That might be the race they ran, but that's not what's in my race. It seems like if I were to talk about the marks of my race in my Christian journey, it's far more despair, hardship, disappointment. But the author goes on not to neglect those things as well. Look at the second part of 35 where we left off. Some, though, were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. You might say that's probably a more accurate description of my Christian journey. It's not these peaks of triumphs, it's these valleys of troubles. But what the author has for us is that these clouds of witnesses are an example of how to run our race. Our race will be different. The same goal in mind, we are in the pursuit of Christ. We are in the pursuit of a heavenly calling towards God. And our race, too, will have peaks and valleys. Our race, too, has twists and turns. Sometimes we see God do incredible things that we couldn't think or imagine him to do. And other times it seems like it's all falling apart, which is why the Christian journey needs persevering endurance, not to give up. It's not a hundred yard dash. It is far more like the Leadville 100. In just the next couple of verses, the author gives us a couple of tools, like a good coach would, a couple of tools for our endurance. He's going to tell us two things. Something to let go of and someone to look at. Something in our life that we are to let go of and someone to look at. This will encourage our perseverance. And so here in 12, he says, after the cloud of witnesses that are the example to us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The first thing we let go of are these weights. Now, weights in our life aren't inherently bad things. 
Weights are actually good things in our life, but crowd out or take from us our energies. My kids and I, we love to go backpacking in Colorado. We also love to go car camping in Colorado. Pretty much we just love to camp in Colorado. But when I'm backpacking with my kids, I do not bring with me my cast iron lodge pan. Now, this is a great pan, and I have cooked a lot of great meals on it, but I don't backpack with it. Why? Because it's an unnecessary weight. It will not help me achieve my goal very well. And so I'm conscious of the weights that I'm taking when I'm backpacking, so that through perseverance and endurance, my children and I will arrive at our destination. With packs too heavy, it becomes an encumbrance. This is what the author is saying about weights in our life. Weights in the Christian life are not things that are necessarily bad, but they're things that crowd out our calendars, that commit our finances, that capture our attention, our mind, and our hearts, so that there's less and less room for energies to go towards the race that we're running. These are not things that we say are, are bad necessarily. They're just simply good things that are weights that in order to continue to run and follow Jesus Christ are to be let go of. You know who understands this really well? The athlete, the musician, the student. They understand that there are certain good things that are offered to them, that they're invited into, that they willingly say no to in order that they might achieve something better. They're disciplined in their time, in their resources, in their attentions, because they have their goal in mind. They're racing. And so we are called to put off, to let go of these unnecessary weights that crowd out the calendar, that commit our finances, that capture our heart's attentions. But all of that energy ends up crowding out all of what's needed for endurance and pursuit of Christ. The second thing he says to let go of is sin that so easily entangles. Now, these are the things that are wrong. These are the things that are not pleasing to God. The sin itself, the root of all sin is really this, is unbelief. All sin is unbelief, that God is good, that God is right, that God is trustworthy. There are things that we do in our life because we say, God doesn't know what's best. God won't provide for me, and so I'm going to do it. But what's so interesting about sin is how it robs us of our energies. I just look at my own life in sin, and I've looked at hundreds and hundreds of people when they're stuck in sin. And this is what I notice, is when we're living in sin, we are robbed of our spiritual zeal. Do you know who understood this the best? was probably David, the king of Israel. When he was living in sin, he knew that all of his energies that were once given to God were like zapped from him. Look over here in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 opens up with, with David saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's a wonderful thing to have your sins forgiven and removed from your life. Verse three, he just admits, and I think we would all admit, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the summer heat or the heat of the summer. It's like trying to do yard work in the middle of July. I have no energy for it. That's the picture of when we're living in sin. 
It takes energy to keep sin hidden in our life, doesn't it? It takes energy to pretend like there's no sin in our life, doesn't it? It takes energy to maintain the sinful habits we have in our life. One of the ways in which we get so worn down that we have no endurance to go on is because we're stuck in sin. And so the author is saying, let it go, put it aside. It clings so close that sometimes you don't even notice it's there anymore. You've lived with it so long, like a, like a physical ailment. You don't even pay attention to its clicking or its pain. So how do we recognize this sin in our life? Well, we need some help. First and foremost, we need help from God. Through his spirit and his word, we need him to identify the sins in our life. I think this is why David goes on and he, in the Psalms and he says, Lord, search me and know me and then surface within me anything that's bent or wrong that you would like to address. And so we need God's spirit and his word to reveal to us the sin that clings so close. We also need people in our life. If, if sin clings very close and it's hard for us to identify, people who love us and know us can be some of the most trusted people for us to go to and say, what habits do you recognize that I'm in? Do you see attitudes of, of greed? Do you see attitudes of comparison, of covetousness, of anger, or seeds of bitterness or unforgiveness? And a loving friend will help us to identify those things. We also need people to help us get unstuck. We need other people who have journeyed the journey before us to show us how they have walked, how they have experienced getting unstuck from some of these habits. If we can be of help to you, we would love to do that. You can click, you can click the link below and reach out to one of our staff members. We would love to help you get unstuck from this sin. For it is the sin that robs us of our energies for endurance and perseverance in the Christian faith. And so here's the first thing that we let go of, weights. And these are the weights that don't build us up. And then we let go of sins, the sins that bind us up. The next he turns and says, okay, if those are things that you're going to let go of, there's somewhere to look, someone to look at. And it says right here, we look at Jesus. Verse 2, looking at Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus. Now, oftentimes we look to our friends, which are good. I mean, just a chapter or two before the author told us, don't forsake getting together with other people because they spur you on. Friends can be an encouragement. We don't forsake to look towards the hall of faith in chapter 11, those saints, because they're an example of faith. But we, let, we, we look to Jesus. We, you know why we look to Jesus? Because he's the executive of our faith. He is the one that actually initiates his will and carries it out. He is the one, as is described here, who is the founder and perfecter. He's the beginning and the end. He is the author and finisher of our faith that when we begin the journey, we looked to Jesus. And the call is to continue to look to Jesus. Not just a one time, but fix your attention on him. When we think about fixing our attention on him, we think of him in three ways. John Phillips, the commentator, breaks it down as, as the person of Jesus, the passions of Jesus, and the position of Jesus. The first is in his position. He is positionally the author and perfecter, the founder and finisher. He's not just 
the race marshal at the beginning with the, with the gun that shoots it off and says, go, go, go. Nor is he, the judge at the end, looking at a stopwatch, wondering, when will they get here? When will they come? No, he's the beginning and he's the end, meaning that he encompasses the whole thing. Unlike the encouragement of our friends that can come and go and friends that will maybe abandon us or leave us at times, or the examples of faith that was great, but we really are looking to them so that we know where to look and that what were they looking at? They were looking at God. They were looking for his promised Messiah. We look to his promised Messiah, Jesus the Christ. You see, the saints of old ran with less knowledge and light of God's plan of salvation. We have more knowledge and light as we look to Jesus. And Jesus, the person of Jesus, is not someone who is aloof or absent from our race, but he is in it with us. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has come and has been tempted and tried, yet without sin, in all the ways that we are tempted. In his person, look at verse three. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is what Jesus Christ did. He ran the race that we run. He knows what it is to be fatigued and tired. He knows what it is to be thirsty and hungry, betrayed, alone. Those are things that Christ himself knows. So consider him the founder and finisher who ran his own race and is a present help to you. Next, look at his passion. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy set before him, what joy is there in the cross, you might ask? No, it's the joy that was through the cross, the joy through suffering. It says, Pastor John talked about last week, it's the reward. Why would anyone join this race? It seems so daunting is because of the great reward. Jesus was looking to the reward through his suffering. What was, what was the reward of his suffering? Salvation to the whole world, to whomsoever would come to him? What joy must have filled his heart to think after the cross, the forgiveness of sins will be sent out to whomsoever would respond. That's a worthy reward. It's not only Jesus. The author has pointed out several times, those who are in this race are pursuing a reward. Look back at chapter 10. At the end of chapter 10, verse 34, he's talking about the company of people who have already gone through so much suffering. He says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you, have done, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. They don't throw it away. There's a great reward through perseverance and endurance. This is what was spoken of Moses. Remember what John said last week in chapter 11, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, you know what the word considered means? He thought about it. 
this intellectual, logical thinking of what's lasting, what's of greater value, the fleeting pleasures of the world or the eternal, full pleasures of God. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This is similar to what the author says about Jesus. For the joy set before him. Don't lose sight of the joy of our faith. There is great reward. This is not prosperity gospel. This is just the truth of the gospel. Friends, there is a great reward for those who run the race and finish it. That's why the author is spending so much time concerned about our endurance and perseverance. So look to Jesus, fix your eyes on his person and his passion, and then finally on his position. Because he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a position of, of authority and power. The author has already told us back in Hebrews chapter, chapter 4, verse 16, that this grace is a grace in which beckons us to come. It says, come, draw near to the throne of grace that you might receive help in your time of need. When you're running in fatigue and it feels like you're in the valleys, come to Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. He has grace and mercy ready to dispense in your time of need. He has the strength to endure through the hardest of days. Paul himself labored and ran this way. When he was writing to a church in Colossae, he opens up his letter by just simply saying this, Colossians 1, 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's laboring after these things. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Because Jesus is enthroned on the throne of grace, I struggle and run and labor and toil with his energy, not my own. I'm running with his strength, not my own, which works so powerfully in me. See what the author's saying? There's something to let go of, weights that don't build us up, sin that binds us up. And there's someone to look at, Jesus, in his person, his passion, and his position in our need for help and endurance. And that is how we run with enduring perseverance, the race that is set out for each one of us. There's a sweet hymn that I think encapsulates all of this, written by a woman named Helen Lemel. She was born in England. She was trained in Germany. She died in America. She witnessed two world wars. And the words she wrote, were, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.